This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, Ben Mathis here with a favor to ask. If you haven't already, subscribe to Kick-Ass News and rate and review us on iTunes. And if you have a moment, share Kick-Ass News with a couple of your friends and recommend us on Facebook or Twitter. As we approach our 200th episode, I really hope you'll spread the word about Kick-Ass News and help keep us at the top of the iTunes charts. Thanks again for listening, and now, enjoy the podcast. Hi. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. Up until recently, I'd vaguely and occasionally heard people express concerns about something called coral bleaching, as in the coral at the bottom of the ocean is turning white. And I thought, well, the coral's changing colors, so what? But a recent film that won the Audience Award at this year's Sundance Film Festival called Chasing Coral opened my eyes to exactly what coral bleaching is and how it's devastating entire ecosystems. You see, when a coral bleaches, it's actually a stress response that means it's dying, leaving behind the bright white bones of what was once a thriving organism, a foundation species, in fact, upon which many other organisms depend. Covering only about one-tenth of one percent of the ocean floor, coral reefs provide habitat for more than 25% of marine species. Additionally, they serve as natural breakwaters protecting shorelines from erosion and storm damage and support commercial and recreational fisheries, an estimated annual value of $200 million just here in the U.S. Indeed, it's estimated that between 500 million and a billion people on this planet rely on coral reefs and the fish that inhabit them for their food security and financial income. But warming waters are decimating the world's coral reefs at an alarming rate. Just in the last 30 years, we've lost 50% of the world's coral. Closer to home, 80-90% to 90 of the coral off the coast of Florida is now dead, and the Great Barrier Reef, the most famous coral reef in the world, lost 29% of its coral just in 2016 alone. In Chasing Coral, documentary filmmaker Jeff Orlowski uses time-lapse imagery to show the startling rate at which warming ocean temperatures are killing our coral. He previously used the same method in his documentary Chasing Ice, which visually documented the impact of climate change on the world's glaciers. That film won awards at over 40 film festivals, including the Sundance Film Festival, and an Emmy for Outstanding Nature Programming. And it was shown at the White House, Congress, and the United Nations. Today, Jeff joins me on the podcast to talk about Chasing Coral, which arrives on Netflix and in select theaters this Friday, July 14th. He'll explain the extraordinary ecosystems that form around coral and how the health of our ocean's coral is in many ways an early indicator of the health of the planet as a whole. We discuss how one of the subjects of the film sees coral awareness as an advertising problem and some of the technical and logistical hurdles that Jeff and his team faced in their race to capture images of the most recent bleaching event. He'll talk about the wider impact of coral bleaching, whether it can be reversed before it's too late, and why some coral reefs are suddenly and mysteriously glowing. Yes, actually glowing. Coming up with documentary filmmaker Jeff Orlowski in just a moment.
Jeff Orlowski is a director, producer, and cinematographer whose previous documentary, Chasing Ice, used time-lapse photography to show the progression of glacial melting around the world. The film won awards at over 40 film festivals, including the Sundance Film Festival's Excellence in Cinematography Award and an Emmy Award for Outstanding Nature Programming. Now Jeff Orlowski adapts the same technology to show the rapid environmental devastation to the world's coral reefs in his latest film, Chasing Coral. Chasing Coral won the Audience Award at this year's Sundance Film Festival, and the film is available on Netflix starting this Friday, July 14th. Jeff, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, before we get into specifically talking about Chasing Coral, I'm curious, how did you get into film and particularly into using this time-lapse photography? Uh, yeah, I when I was younger, I just wanted to be a Nat Geo photographer. I wanted to go out and travel the world and see these beautiful places that were featured in the magazine growing up. And um, when I was in college, I got to meet James Balog, who became the subject of Chasing Ice. Uh, James was wanting to do time lapses of glaciers. So he had spent a lot of time in the Arctic, and he was aware of what was going on regarding climate change. And he really wanted to create visual evidence of what was happening. So his whole approach was using this tool, uh, this well-known and well-understood tool uh, for uh, for filming, um, using time lapse, he thought could reveal what was happening in a different way. And ever since then, and, and working with James, it's been um, this really, really valuable go-to for us to use this this framework to be able to capture what is happening on the planet, um, so that we can share it with the public. And now you're using that same technology for at least part of chasing coral. I'm interested in how this project began. A man named Richard Vivers approached you about doing a film similar to what you did with glacial melting, but this time using the time-lapse technology to show coral bleaching. Who is Mr. Vivers, and what is his interest in this issue? Yeah, Richard, uh, his background was in advertising, and he sort of gave it all up to become an underwater photographer and started traveling the world to, to document that. Pretty similar, actually, now that I think about it, uh, in terms of what I wanted to do. And for Richard, when he was out there diving all around the planet, he started to see what was happening to the ocean, and he wanted to do something more meaningful and more important. So he wanted to use his skills as a communicator, um, knowing how to work with press and knowing how to, how to share things from an advertising perspective, and he wanted to use that same approach for the ocean cause. Um, and he came across this story of coral bleaching. And coral bleaching is when the temperature of the water rises to a certain point that it, it makes the corals sick. They can't um, – the the plants that live inside the coral start overproducing from too much heat and too much energy. And it, uh, it – just like in a human, if you've got bad food in your stomach, you'll vomit it out. <laughs> uh, the coral yeah. animal um, can't tolerate this plant doing – like overproducing. So the animal ejects the plant. And in that process, the corals turn white. And it was this very, very strange phenomenon that scientists started to document. And Richard was able to go out there and start photographing it. And, and that became this way that we could visually show people what was happening. So when coral is bleaching, then that means it's, it's a sign that it's dying. It's losing its color. or What, what, it's, what does that exactly mean? So, it's a, so I guess 
I didn't really know much about corals at all before getting into this, and now right. it's now because I, I was so second nature. Yeah, yeah I, coral, I felt the same way because I was always like, "Well, it's oh, corals bleaching. Okay, so it changes color. So what?" Yeah, <laughs> until yeah. I watched this movie. So a coral is an animal. It's like a fleshy animal that has plants living inside it that feed it, which mm. is first of all pretty freaking crazy. It's the the plant that lives inside is using photosynthesis, and then it just makes food for the coral. And so that animal, as it grows, it makes a skeleton. So it deposits rock behind. So it's basically the symbiotic relationship between the plant and the animal. Um, they're feeding each other. The, well, the, the plant is feeding the animal. The animal keeps growing, gets bigger and bigger, and it leaves this rock behind. And that's what makes the entire structure of a coral reef is through this really simple, simple relationship between a plant and an animal. Wow. And when the water gets too hot, it, it, lit, it is just a straight, you raise the temperature of the water and they start turning white. So that plant is what is feeding the animal and it's the plant that provides the color that you see. Okay. And so, so the color is not the coral it's technically, not, like, it's the no, plant, the, the things that are the coral itself, the animal yeah. is colorless. It's clear, okay. it's transparent. And so when the coral ejects the plants when it's too hot, when it's overproducing, um, it loses those algae, it loses the color, and it and you then see the clear skin of the coral animal which lets you see straight through to the white skeleton underneath, the rock that it was building. Wow. So when you see a, a bleached reef, you're seeing an animal that is so sick that it ha it basically has vomited out the, <laughs> the creature that feeds it. Like wow. That's how sick it is at that stage. Now, the odd thing is that it looks really beautiful when it's white, and it's this mesmerizing, sparkling, clean, white look. Uh, when you see a coral... A coral skeleton on a bookshelf, or somebody might have it by a beach right. house. You're yeah. used to seeing that white skeleton, yeah. but that that's without the animal, and that's the skeleton mm -hmm. that it left in its wake, and that's a dead coral, obviously. Um, and we're seeing that happening throughout the ocean. These white corals that are so sick um, that they've done their last ditch effort to try to protect itself, um, and has ejected its very food source. Uh, in hoping to survive. Yeah, it's weird because prior to this movie, I tended to think of coral as a largely inanimate object, like yeah. a tree stump or a rock. But I was amazed at how extremely complex these organisms yeah. are yeah, yeah, yeah. and their their own self-contained ecosystems, really. I had no idea about any of this. I mean, I for really? me, the coolest part of being a, a filmmaker is I get to go out and study a subject for a while and then try to make a try to retell that story, um, learning about the oceans has been mesmerizing. They are such complicated ecosystems. They have evolved over millennia, like that millions and millions of years to get to this, this very, very tight-knit relationship that all these creatures have. Every single creature on a reef has a function. If it didn't have a function, it would disappear. It's, they're wow. all adding to this ecosystem. Wow, yeah, because I think you were saying that there are certain animals that basically create sand from yeah. the coral and certain, I think, a certain type of crab that defends the coral. Like you just said, every animal seems to have a role to play in this weird little ecosystem. Yeah. It's almost like an alien world. It, it is a completely alien world. 
and um, the the role of symbiotic relationships, so two creatures that depend on one another, is seen throughout the reef everywhere. Huh. And people, I mean, there's there are many many analogies on land as well. You've probably seen photographs of you know a bird that has an extremely long beak that only fits this one particular flower with an extremely long stamen or whatever. Like the yeah. the pieces just fit perfectly. Um, that's all over a coral reef. Wow. Um, the the quintessential example is an anem- anemone mm-hmm. and a clownfish. So the anemone is providing shelter for the clownfish, and the clownfish often feeds the anemone. Um, so that's your little Nemo fish that you're picturing. <laughs> that relationship there is one where they, they depend on each other, they help each other. Yeah, and Richard Vivers, the ad agent turned environmentalist, he says in the movie that he sees this as largely an advertising problem. Yeah. Because, you know, I guess it's kind of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind kind of situation where most people aren't looking beneath the ocean surface and they're not aware of this sort of thing. How important are our coral reefs to other organisms, to humans, and to the planet as a whole? So a, bu- a bunch of thoughts to, to <laughs> okay. go into with that. But, um, so coral reefs are the backbone for the ocean. They are the nursery for the ocean. About a quarter of all creatures that live in the ocean spend part of their life cycle on a coral reef. Wow. So you can't have a healthy ocean without healthy coral reefs. Like they, they are necessary. Um, and yet we're losing them dramatically and very, very rapidly. Um, and you're right. This is more than anything. It's a communications problem that, that this broader issue is facing. Um, the scientists know what's up. They know what's going on. Um, but the field of science traditionally has been designed to be a very internal type of communication. They right. publish their best work in peer-reviewed magazine in, in, in these in literature that is designed for other scientists. And this is how scientists advance their fields. They they come up with an idea, they write about it, other people try to rip it apart, they fix it, they make it as as solid as it can be and it gets presented to the world. And then some other scientists will come and try to attack that idea. They will try to do a different experiment, maybe make it a little bit better. Um, and they will either confirm or reject the, pre- the first experiment. And over countless hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of experiments, we've gotten to this understanding of how the planet works, how climate change works, what's going on, how the planet is changing. And all of that is designed to be this relatively internalized conversation among scientists. And those scientists have a, in general, have a harder time of getting those ideas out to the general public. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that we're starting to see, this huge shift in the science community, trying to become much more proactive in communicating with the public. Yeah. And it's interesting because that's a conversation I've had recently with a number of people like Neil deGrasse Tyson yeah. and Alan Alda, who has a whole center for communicating yeah. science, is that scientists and science communicators often are so insulated from Absolutely. the outside world. They're used yeah. to communicating with each other on their own level. Right. And they have a tough time sometimes simplifying it or being able to communicate in ways that the average American or the average person can understand. It's a it's a huge challenge. Yeah. And I think that in the notes I was reading, uh, 
one of the people who claims to be a self-professed choral nerd, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to remember his name. Zach Rago. Yeah. Zach Rago, that's right. Uh, he says that that's a problem he's run into because he's now trying to take this to the classrooms and to students, and it's hard to simplify what's going on under the ocean in a way that uh, young people and even adults can understand. Well, I think kids love this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, kids respond and kids get it pretty easily, it seems. Um, the challenge is, in my mind, the challenge is that there's a lot of misinformation out there. Mm. And that's one of the biggest issues that we're, um, we're combating so much misinformation around climate science that the general public doesn't know what to believe because they've just heard so many different things. And we can't expect the general public to read every paper that comes out on climate change or stay on top of the scientific literature, right? So it's it's not the public's fault in many ways. Um, it's very understandable that the public is confused because there's a lot of confusing information out mm-hmm. there. Yeah, and I want to run a statistic by the listeners here. Uh, 500 million people, you say, depend on the reefs for food and or their income. That's that's a a, remarkable impact on human beings here on the land. Yeah, and that's a minimum estimate. Some estimates say a billion or 1.2 billion people. Uh, And they're not just relying on on reefs for food. This is... In some cases, many cases, their main source of protein is coming wow. from the fish from a reef. So without those reefs, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people being malnourished. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a big deal, yeah. right? When you look at Syria and you look at the drought that sparked uh, in large parts this conflict in Syria, yeah. that's a food shortage, uh, a resource shortage that then led to – you know, m- several million refugees that are trying to find another place to live. Um, what happens when hundreds of millions of people run out of food? Yeah. When they run out of their protein source? Um, the, the implications here are not pretty. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And you also point out that I didn't know this. A number of pharmaceuticals come directly yeah. from the coral reefs. Coral reefs are a, a cornucopia of drugs and in relationships and chemicals that we are just starting to scratch the surface and understanding. So there are um, leading cancer uh, medications that wow. are coming from coral reefs themselves, from sponges or from other creatures in the reef. Well, I was amazed at the speed, particularly with which this happens. You document how the coral reef off the coast of American Samoa bleached within just six months. And probably the best known coral reef for most people is the Great Barrier Reef. And you say that 29% of it was lost just in 2016. That's remarkable. Yeah. We watched an entire reef ecosystem die in about two months. And every scientist that we met, that we showed the images to, um, very consistently, they were all surprised by how much it changed, how fast it changed. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at the before-after pictures, the pictures at the end look like they've been dead for years. It, it yeah. looks devastated. Yeah. And the scientists were um, – I was surprised by how shocked the scientists were that it was such a short period of time. Yeah, and even closer to home, the film also claims that we've lost 90% of the coral off Florida, right? Um, Florida's pretty devastated from the perspective of coral reefs. Wow. Um, There's still places where you can dive and you can still see corals, and there's some really? places where you can still see sharks and grouper and other things. Um, but uh, healthy coral reefs 
So coral reefs are often um, rated based on a percentage of coral coverage. Okay. So when you look straight down on a reef, if you were to take a picture, what percentage of that photograph has coral covering it? Some coral reefs are so healthy, you can have over 100% coverage. There's such a three-dimensional structure there that corals can <laughs> overlap with one another. So I've heard of reefs that have 120% coverage or even 130% <laughs> wow. coverage. Um, parts of Florida are down to 6% now. So the, the reefs in Florida are not doing well. Well, that's amazing that you say that they can have more than 100% coverage because I think in the film there was a marine biologist who describes coral reefs almost like cities of yeah. high-rise buildings yeah. with fish that have lived in the same coral their whole lives, made homes there. That's what blows me away. It yeah. is a city. These are three-dimensional structures. This this animal and plant, that little dynamic <laughs> between those two tiny creatures, can grow and build a structure that can be seen from space. Wow. Like coral reefs are real. They're really magical. <laughs> Which coral reefs did you document and in some cases attempt to document in this film? Um, we, uh, I'm pretty sure that the film covers every major coral reef region on the planet. Um, we did a lot in Florida, Bermuda, Bahamas. Um, we dove in Cuba, flower gardens off the coast of Texas uh, and Hawaii. So those are in the Caribbean and the U.S. Um, we covered American Samoa, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, and a lot of time on the Great Barrier Reef. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll have more with Emmy-winning documentary filmmaker Jeff Orlowski when we come back in just a minute. HelloFresh is on a mission to save home cooking. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step -step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. They source the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste, and they even employ two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. I've started making meals from HelloFresh, and let me tell you, the ingredients always arrive fresh in an insulated, recyclable box. Everything comes perfectly portioned out, and the recipes are quick and easy to follow, so even an amateur like me can put together a great home-cooked meal in no time. And most importantly, HelloFresh's meals taste great. So great, in fact, that when Mother's Day rolled around this year, I ordered HelloFresh for my mom, and now she's hooked as well. HelloFresh is now offering light summer meals and has just introduced breakfast options, delicious ingredients you'll love to eat, simple recipes you'll live to cook. So get cooking and do it for less than $10 a meal. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter KICK30 when you subscribe. Again, that's HelloFresh.com and enter KICK30. When severe weather hits, a forecast on your phone just doesn't cut it. You need to know what to do, how to stay safe, and what to expect next. You need the Weather Channel, the nation's most trusted source for severe weather coverage. They go beyond maps and apps with weather experts on the front lines of the storm. The Weather Channel meteorologists make sure you understand the why behind the weather and what steps you need to take to stay safe. And the Weather Channel is exploring our atmosphere like never before. 
They're leading the way with the use of real-time augmented reality, allowing you to see inside a hurricane, the potential threats of storm surge, or even taking you on a virtual tour inside a tornado. You've never seen weather like this before, and understanding our atmosphere is the best way to prepare for severe weather. Every season, every storm, every time you watch, trust the Weather Channel. And now, back to the podcast. You guys had to change your game plan several times throughout this movie. I guess that's why you call it Chasing Coral, (laughs) because (laughs) you're trying to predict where a particular event is going to happen, and there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of luck to it, I imagine. Talk about some of the technical and logistical hurdles you ran into making this movie. So we always... um we had faith that we could capture it because we were working with really good scientists mm-hmm. who knew how to interpret the data from the satellites, and they were giving us really good predictions on what parts of the planet were likely to bleach. Um, the challenge is that if a region experiences bleaching, it doesn't mean that every piece of coral in that region is right. going to bleach. So you're still – it is a needle in a haystack. Like you're still mm-hmm. looking – to find the individual pieces of coral or areas that you think might go. So we were chasing it for a while at the start. Um, and we also had a lot of technical challenges with our equipment, which uh, are pretty well documented in the film. Um, but we had to modify our game plan uh, a number of times. Um, and it, it was a huge challenge to figure out how can we capture this phenomenon that nobody's really seen before. Yeah, because you were using these pretty sophisticated time-lapse cameras, and I guess they had to be relatively self-maintaining, and I guess they had to have like a Wi-Fi hotspot to transmit images, right? Yeah, it was, uh, the first round was a bit more complicated than we needed ultimately, but the, (laughs) um, we were trying to design a system that would allow us to adjust our exposure and our focus and some other, some other parameters remotely. And so we've got this camera in a waterproof housing and it's a dedicated housing that has a windshield wiper on it. So it would keep any algae from growing on it. This was the the first and biggest lesson for me. If you just put a piece of glass in the water, if you put a camera in the water in a regular underwater housing, and if you just left it there, within several hours and certainly within a day, you'd start to have ocean life living on the camera <laughs> and particularly living on the glass right in front of your lens. Wow. So very quickly, that entire glass surface would start to coagulate and collect all of this material on it, um, making it pretty impossible to shoot through. So we needed to hmm. figure out a way to have a windshield wiper or something that would keep the camera clean. Yeah, and eventually the footage that you had from that was out of focus for some reason. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure why. I don't know if that's the we pressure don't really down know there either. or, or no, what. There's, but, yeah. We were hacking the system as <laughs> as actively as we could, so yeah. there were probably all sorts of ghosts in the system. But we we yeah. ended up having to change that strategy. We were able to fix the focusing problem and some mm-hmm. of the other technical problems and, and go from there. Yeah, and you ended up manually documenting the coral bleaching. I guess that was a pretty tedious process. You would go down each yeah. day and take a photograph tedious, and see um, progress. Or this was about as tedious as it could possibly get. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so one of, the, one of the important things for us was to try to get the cameras. This is what time lapses do by default usually, right? Um, you want the camera in the same exact position right. every day. So if the camera is in the same position, 
then it eliminates a lot of the other variables and mm-hmm. it eliminates the visual distraction. Yeah. So I've seen a bunch of photos online of look at the city today and look at it 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you look at it and you're like, this can't possibly be in the same spot. Is that really the same city? And then you're searching and you're like, oh, well, there's a lamppost there. And well, maybe that building, that building's that building. And you're doing all of this thinking just to figure out if it's in the same spot or not. Yeah. If you have a strong, consistent visual reference in the shot, and if the shot's from the same exact perspective, then you don't question it. Then you know mm-hmm. it's the same exact spot. Yeah. So sometimes you've seen those before-after pictures that if it's perfectly aligned, you know immediately that's yeah. the same spot. Which has so, to be hard to do under the ocean. <laughs> really hard to do under the ocean when you're doing it manually, when you're doing it by hand. Yeah. The You're doing it on sand. So the ground <laughs> changes every exactly. single day. And so we used we, – we devised all sorts of techniques to try to figure out how to get the camera in the same shot. I literally had underwater lasers zip-tied to my <laughs> camera housing so I could triangulate the camera in three-dimensional space with references, with markers, with markers for where the tripod legs go, with notes on how high the tripod needed to be, which degree on the tripod head I needed to orient it towards, reference photos that I could compare before <laughs> and after to. So it would take a solid five minutes. That after I got it like <laughs> – dialed in, it would still take five minutes to get the the camera in the same exact position, all while you're scuba diving. Yeah, and I was just going to say, now, did you have much diving experience when you started this movie? Um, uh, I did four dives before this film started. Okay. Um, So I I knew enough that I I knew I could breathe underwater. Um, (laughs) And then uh, we had a great team and and dive masters, and one of our cinematographers, Andrew, he and I did a lot of dive training um, to learn how to dive better, how mm-hmm. to shoot underwater, learning all of that. Yeah. Now, I mentioned your self-professed coral nerd, Zach Rago. Um, he even has fish tanks of coral in his home with no fish, just yeah. coral. And I think for him in particular, this seems to have been a pretty emotional experience. Zach, in my, he's like the emotional heart of the film. Mm-hmm. He's a young guy out of Colorado who... Um, just fell in love with corals at a very young age and uh, worked in an aquarium shop and learned about corals, learned how to identify corals. Um, he's so passionate, passionate about them that it's infectious. You sort of, it bleeds off yeah. and you, you care for them in part because you see how he cares for them. Now you guys expected to capture images of coral bleaching, but in one case, much to everyone's surprise and confusion, the coral in New Caledonia actually started mysteriously glowing. What was behind that? Yeah, so uh, at the start of this project, we had heard rumors from some of the scientists that at a certain stage, sometimes corals fluoresce. The colors are so bright um, and so extremely neon fluorescent. fluorescent. Yeah, um, like a highlighter. It, exactly. They, When you're used to being on a reef, these colors stick out a lot. Mm-hmm. But for the average person who hasn't spent much time diving, if you go and dive on a fluorescent fluorescing reef, it just looks beautiful and spectacular. And it was a challenge for us to think through, like, okay, this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And yet we're trying to tell audiences that there's something really <laughs> wrong with this. Um, and it, it was a very rare sight. Um, I had not seen any images of fluorescing corals before the project, and we fortunately were able to capture them. Um, and the hope is that these images can help be part of a wake-up call for the public to see and understand, wait a second, like 
This this is not normal. If I have this right, I think in the film that they say that it's some type of a sunscreen to actually protect the coral. Is that right? Or is yeah. that one of the theories? The the corals are getting so hot mm-hmm. that they're they're basically trying it's sort of this last ditch effort to minimize the the temperature impact, the heat mm-hmm. impact. So this uh it's it's simplifying it a bit, okay. but this sunscreen uh analogy, I think um makes the most sense in terms of mm-hmm. it's trying to keep some of this heat energy off of it. Yeah, and it's interesting because everyone in the film says that they're certain that this coral bleaching is not a natural phenomenon. It's not yeah. a disease. It's not too much sunlight hitting the coral. Uh, how do they know that this is man-made warming that's causing this and not something else? Yeah, well, one of the simplest things is um, coral reefs, just like trees— have a history embedded in the structure itself. Like rings, okay. Just like tree rings and just like glacial ice core rings. Right. So in glaciers, you can dig down and you can count every year of annual snowfall. And in trees, you can see annual growth rings. And in coral reefs, you can do the same. So they can drill into a coral and find these very ancient old corals. And they can count year by year by year and see, oh, they can they can put an exact date on a particular part of the coral. Hmm. These the consequences of the coral bleaching shows up as a very distinct band in those coral skeletons, and they only have really seen them starting in the eighties, and they've been correlated now to these bleaching events that we know have happened in various places on the planet. Yeah, and I was interested to learn that the oceans absorb a lot of the heat in our atmosphere, thus, I guess, keeping things cooler for those of us on the Earth's surface. So I wonder, in a sense, could one think of the bleaching of the coral reefs sort of as the tip of the spear when it comes to climate change? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The The vast majority, about 93% of the energy trapped from climate change, is being absorbed into the ocean. So. <laughs> wow. The air temperature isn't changing that much compared to the ocean temperature changes, um, but they're both still rising. Um, the ocean is absorbing the ocean is absorbing so much of this heat, and corals are on like you're saying they're on the front line. This is the ecosystem that is changing the most. It, it's a very sensitive ecosystem. Corals live in a very specific temperature range. They've been optimized for that. They, they live as close as they can to that threshold because it allows them for the greatest productivity. And, and now we're just pushing them beyond that threshold. And there's, it's a very, very bleak future for coral reefs mm. based on the known projections from climate change. Even if we started, stopped emitting fossil fuels today, the planet will continue to warm for 20 years. There's an inertia in the system. So it's going to get worse for coral reefs unless we figure out some way to massively reduce carbon from the atmosphere. Given this inertia that you're talking about, I mean, do you worry that there may not be a way to reverse this quickly enough? I have mixed optimism, (laughs) cautious optimism Mm -hmm. around uh, the future fate of coral reefs. They will not be able to survive at this stage without massive human intervention. Mm-hmm. And there are scientists working on that. How do we selectively breed them to be more resilient? How do we keep um, ocean temperatures cooler? How do we shade the corals? How do we? I mean, oh, there are scientists talking okay. about seeding clouds 
to huh. appear over coral reefs to keep the intensity of sunlight off of the reef. Um, so all of the like, this is an all-out effort to preserve coral wow. reefs on the planet. But from my perspective, the story here isn't even a coral reef story. This is just this is a planetary scale change and experiment that humans are conducting right now through our actions, through our daily actions that will undermine the stability of this planet for all of the services that humans require and have relied on. So if we don't address this now, we're definitely losing coral reefs, but we're also going to lose mangroves mm -hmm. and seagrasses and the functioning of the ocean. Like, yeah, if if we destroy the ocean's ability to function as it currently does, we will destroy the stability that human civilization is dependent on. That's mm -hmm. an extremely scary notion. Yeah. And this is not some far off doomsday thing. This is like my lifetime scenario that we're talking about. You show the bright white coral in the film, and then you also show how after that they start to accumulate algae and they get very fuzzy looking. Yeah. I'm wondering at what point the process becomes irreversible. At what point is the coral actually dead? Yeah, I'm trying to think how best to answer your question. Are you, are you talking about within a specific coral? Yeah, at what point? Well, yeah, I guess they probably differ. So That's when, true. Um, when you're on a reef, uh, as the temperature rises different corals will start to bleach sooner than others and, okay. uh, and some will die sooner than others. Okay. Just like in a some population. Some are less resilient and Yeah, some so are just more. picture a hundred okay. people in a room and everybody starts getting the flu. Mm -hmm. it, it's not everybody's affected the same way at the same time. Mm -hmm. So the same holds true to coral reefs, uh, which makes it hard to document to predict it because you don't know which coral is going to bleach yeah. or not. <laughs> um, but the, the most shocking thing is that by the by the time we got to the end of the production, um, the conditions in Australia were so bad that pretty much everything that we were filming was dying. So we watched wow. on a reef in Australia, we watched 95% of everything that we saw die um, in a matter of two months. I mean, this is not this is extreme mass mortality in an extremely short period of time. And that is happening all throughout the ocean. That's this incredible. is this is not some make believe conspiracy yeah. over you know a, some agenda to regulate people's lives. <laughs> this is the ocean falling apart in front of us. One of the great natural wonders of the world, the Great Barrier Reef. Like I said earlier, twenty nine percent of that reef you say died in twenty sixteen in yeah, one alone. year. Yeah, so, I, there's some. Uh, the science that's on record versus the scientists, the the the, the off record. Mm -hmm. feelings from our colleagues differ greatly. Okay. The 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 science that gets published is the collectively accepted answers. So right. those are the in many cases the optimistic scenarios, yeah. right? These are the least common denominator what everybody can agree upon answers. I have some friends who who don't think that the the Great Barrier Reef has more than like two decades, wow. arguably even less. Um that's now that I don't want that to sound like the science <laughs> scientists aren't alarmists. Yeah. The science is alarming. That's yeah. the thing. Like okay. the rate of change here doesn't fit any natural cycle. If you think about mm -hmm. it, like if this happened on a natural cycle, mm -hmm. there would be no coral reefs on the planet already. Right. right. They, they can't survive that level of mortality and make it. Yeah. Right? You're, you're just dying off faster than you can reproduce. They just won't right. exist. So 
there's something very, very abnormal going on, and the only explanation that we have is is the human factor. Now, these large-scale bleaching phenomena seem to be happening in a wave every few years. Um, yeah. Can we reliably predict when the next major bleaching event will happen? So for the last couple of decades, the bleaching events have all happened in sync with El Nino's. Okay. So in El Nino's, a, a known natural cycle, it's an aberration in temperature. The ocean in the Pacific gets a bit hotter than normal, and then it changes weather patterns all around the planet. Um, the problem is that now corals are bleaching without El Nino's. That's how much the ocean has warmed in the last couple of decades. It is collecting so much heat and trapping so much heat that it doesn't need an El Nino anymore for it to bleach. Wow. So um, El Ninos used to operate on you know roughly seven-year cycle and blah, blah, blah. Um, right. that, a lot of that is getting thrown out the window right now because the ocean conditions are just that hot. Now, when we're talking about a bump in temperature, I mean, how, how much of a difference in temperature causes coral to bleach? So uh, for generally. coral, um, it's one to two degrees Celsius okay. above the average high summer temperatures. Okay. So Give us um, in that's Fahrenheit. in Fahrenheit. That's, uh, <laughs> it's that's, been a while since I've done um, it. <laughs> 1.8 to 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. So, so not a lot. It's not a lot. That's the thing. So, so think about your own human body. We're mm -hmm. at 98.6, give or take a little bit. Mm -hmm. Imagine having a fever of 102.2. Yeah. Right? That would not be comfortable. Right. right? That's what <laughs> corals are yeah. living in. Interesting. So That's just imagine analogy. the water. They're, they're not moving, right? They're just sitting in water. And the water is getting hotter to the point where it raises their own body temperature. Wow. So imagine you're living in a bathtub that just brought your body temperature up to 102. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the first couple hours, all right, this is an endurance challenge, okay, whatever. Right. The first day you're struggling, you know, a couple days in, a yeah. week in, you're not doing well, and yeah. you're not going to survive 102 body temperature for very right. long. Well, it's the old boiling frog analogy. Right. If you throw a frog in a pot of boiling water, it'll, it'll probably jump out. Yeah. But if you just gradually raise that temperature just a little bit, he basically yeah. boils in his own bathtub there. That's what's happening to yeah. the entire ocean right now. Wow. We are basically just boiling the ocean. Well, what are you hoping that the audience will take away from this film, most importantly? I, I really hope that this is a wake-up call. Mm -hmm. um, I... I thought I knew a lot about this issue five years ago when we did Chasing Ice, and I am more shocked and horrified at the future of the world having spent the last four years studying the oceans. Wow. Like, the oceans Gosh. are changing so much, um, and and this is a real huge problem. If we... It, it will never be as cheap or as easy to solve this problem as it is today. And mm. every minute that we wait will only yield a more expensive challenge for us to overcome, and it will only yield much more human suffering. And that's that's a struggle. Yeah. Like in, in my yeah. own life, I've had to evacuate my house twice because of wildfires. My house got flooded from a v extremely abnormal flood that hovered over our city for a week. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a this is storm in Colorado, in right? In Colorado. Yeah. Um, my grandmother had her house uh, in New York flooded by Sandy. So in the span of a few years, I've had four major natural disasters affect mm -hmm. my family. Now, fortunately, I'm, I'm comfortable enough that we were able to 
endure all of those, right? And the insurance took care of the Sandy damage, or the the city did whatever, and and the flood damage was, you know, expensive but manageable. Um, there are many parts of this country that are going to be affected by climate change where people might not have the financial resources to get them out of that. Wow. And not just this country, but globally, the places that are going to be affected the most are in many cases impoverished communities that don't have the financial resources to get out of it. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, before we sign off, any idea what your next project will be? Um, not really sure just yet. Okay. We're really just trying to get this film out there and get people to see it and, mm -hmm. and raise awareness through the stories that are already happening. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, just just one other thought to add, like this is um, the reality of all of this is very daunting and overwhelming. Um, but quite honestly, I'm still very optimistic mm -hmm. and I'm very positive about what can be done um, because – now we know. Mm -hmm. Like for a long time, we didn't know what the consequences of these actions were. So right. it's not. This is not putting fault on on you know all of past human civilization for where we're at right now. But we know what's going on now, and we can take actions. And these solutions already exist. And we're seeing the the most hopeful thing is that the the shift in technology that we've been seeing is so rapid that we can actually dig ourselves out of this mess that we're in. Uh, but it requ it will require a huge effort. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for that, I'm very, very hopeful. And, and the, the youth get it. Like yeah. the youth care about this and they're putting a lot of energy into it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what scientists come up with uh, in the meantime as temporary solutions to try and at least put a stopgap on this problem. Right. Yeah. I'm intrigued by what you said about seeding clouds and artificial yeah. shade and so forth. We're at the stage of massive geoengineering yeah. um, to try to minimize this. And those are scary experiments. Yeah. There are some experiments that people are talking about that could chemically – you can do a physical or chemical intervention on huh. these on these grand ideas – and some of them are – you only get one shot. Like mm -hmm. if it doesn't work, you're just messing up more ecosystems. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and like you said, you know, now is as good a shot as we're ever going to get right. to fix this problem. Uh, well, it's an interesting film. Again, Chasing Coral arrives on Netflix on July 14th. Jeff Orlowski, thanks for joining yeah, me. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks again to Jeff Orlowski for coming on the podcast. Chasing Coral is available on Netflix and in select theaters beginning this Friday, July 14th. For more information, visit ChasingCoral.com. Visit Jeff Orlowski at JeffOrlowski.com or on Twitter at at Jeff Orlowski. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at PodSurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kickass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at, at @kickassnewspod and be sure to recommend Kickass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com/kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.
Podcast News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.